communicating with them. The last announcement I'd like to make is that on Friday, December the 2nd, where unfortunately I won't be able to attend, Angela Davis, thinker, scholar, activist, will be speaking at the First Congregational Church of Oakland, the 2501 Harrison Street, about her new book, which I believe was mistyped in the sheet before me. Uh, it says it's called Abolition Democracy. I'm not quite sure that's correct. Beyond Empire, Prisons, and Torture, uh, Angela has been very firm in the view that prisons do no good whatever. At all events, it's uh, on Tuesday the 4th at Congregational Church uh, in Oakland, and I will simply say that I'm kind of proud of the fact that the first time I met her, in order to get a signature on the, her uh, autobiography, uh, she told me she had read a paper of mine, delivered an academic event uh, while she was in prison. At all events, this is Bill Mandel. Uh, those of you who, who feel like supporting my staying on the station, we're going to have a, an informational picket line Tuesday evening at 6 p.m. at the doors of the station. And uh, I'd like to see people there. Thank you very much and good night. Oh, the next show is called Cover to Cover. It's a book review program, and it's one of the shows on this station that I personally love a great deal. Good night. Come on down to the 35th annual KPFA Crafts and Music Fair. It's a celebration of peace and a gathering place for incredible world music, delicious natural foods, and beautiful crafts from over 200 unique artists. It all happens on December 10th and 11th from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. at the Concourse Exhibition Center on 8th and Brannan Streets in San Francisco. Free shuttles will run from Civic Center BART, and the event is wheelchair accessible. For more information, visit kpfa.org on the World Wide Web or call 510-848-6767, extension 611. That's 510-848-6767, extension 611. Spread the word, bring your family and friends, and come celebrate peace at the 35th annual KPFA Crafts and Music Fair. We'll see you there at the the fair. It is 3 o'clock here in the city of Berkeley, and you are listening to 94.1 KPFA, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, and 88.1 KFCF in Fresno. And before we get to cover to cover, we're going to play a little music right here. Your love's a lie. 
Good afternoon, and welcome to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. Today, we bring you an interview with Margot Pepper by poet and radio producer Nina Serrano. Margot Pepper was here to talk about her book, Through the Wall, A Year in Havana, that chronicles her experience living in Cuba. Through the Wall captures Cuba during its special period in 1992, when the most austere economic measures of the island's history were ushered in. Pepper was granted a year-long visa to work as a journalist for Cuba's most prestigious newspaper, Granma Internacional, and begins her book as one begins a journey, hopeful, excited, and nervous. This is the time that tough economic measures spurred by the collapse of the Soviet trading bloc are being put in place and that tougher sanctions are being imposed by the United States. And now we go to the interview of Margot Pepper, the author of Through the Wall, A Year in Havana, with Nina Serrano. Margot, I spent nights staying up late reading your book. I, I loved it. One of the reasons was that I myself had also lived and worked in Havana, and so I found your account fascinating and your writing really exciting. What brought you to Cuba? My parents were actually, my father was an organizer in Hollywood and producer and was blacklisted in the 1950s by Senator Joe McCarthy. And rather than incriminate their colleagues for their political beliefs, they fled to Mexico, where they lived for 20 years, where I was born. I went to Cuba to see the embodiment of the ideals for which they sacrificed their lives in the United States. So what did you find when you got there? Well, it took me a decade to research and write that answer in Through the Wall. But one of the things I learned in this process is that how one perceives Cuba depends on which lens one is looking through, whether it's a first world or third world lens. Um, I came to realize that um, when I was there, it was a really difficult period. The uh, It was known as the special period. And um, the economy that was something like $8.2 billion was slashed to $2.2 billion annually. And things had really come to almost a grinding halt. Um, and there were a lot of privations. And so... <clears throat> A year of this really tried everyone in Cuba, especially myself, who was used to first world standards. Um, even though I had been born in Mexico, um, my lifestyle here has become pretty cushy thanks to um, the U.S. colonizing so many countries. And so what I came to realize, ironically, about my frustrations in Cuba was that they were a result of my inflated standard of living back here in the U.S., built on the colonization of the Americas. Before the 59 revolution, the achievements of the U.S. and Spanish democracy, so-called democracy in Cuba, were that 5 million out of 6 million Cubans lived in shacks or had no housing at all. 80% of Havana suffered from hunger, and two or three Cuban children didn't attend, two out of three didn't even attend school. Then in 59, when the revolution happened after that, Cuba, since that, Cuba has been able to provide free health care, education and graduate school, and to subsidize food, utilities, and housing. There are virtually no homeless people in Cuba. Earlier you said something about looking at Cuba with first or third world eyes. Can you elaborate what you meant by that? Perhaps read from the book. Yeah, this was summed up best, actually, by a woman in the bodega, um, who handed me my rations when we went daily to get our food. <clears throat> and her name was 
Her name is Carmen. Carmen, who records the rations I buy each day at the bodega, grumbles that the foreigners that live in this building are selfish. They just live for themselves, she says. It's always been that way. First the Spanish, then the Yankees, then after the revolution, the Soviets and Bulgarians. Her speech is slow, dragged, the pace of years of patience. Now the ones who live here do nothing but complain. What I don't understand, I say, is why they come here in the first place. They seem so unhappy. They get disillusioned, says Carmen, speaking in her usual slow, deliberate way. They have this notion of heaven. Like the bourgeoisie here used to think of heaven, a place where everyone good ends up. Only that's the problem. The poor have ended up in heaven, too, in the same place as the rich. They eat at the same tables, sleep on the same clouds, you know. They have to share. Carmen gives us a rare calculated crocodile smile. Well, this separates those who deserve heaven from those who deserve the inferno. For the more humble ones, well, not to have to worry about food, education, bills, a roof over your head, to feel secure is absolute heaven. But the richer ones who cause the poor to suffer, they don't like to share, so they consider the same place hell. That was Margot Pepper reading from her new book, Through the Wall, A Year in Havana. Well, Marco, what was so interesting to me, who lived in Cuba in 1975 and uh, worked there and besides other visits, was that the environment that I remember when I went to where you used to work at Grandma to visit people who worked there was I found it so unpleasant a work environment. And yet in your book, people were having so much fun. You're talking, you're laughing, you're sharing your lives. And when I went there, it was like a, a sweatshop. People kind of chained to their desks, long rows of desks, and people got in a lot of trouble if they were five minutes late. It was just like a major offense. But at the same time, in your book, people around you are very critical of what's going on because it's the special period when you're there. And so Cubans and foreigners alike are full of critiques of what's going on, where when I was there... The conditions were not so terribly different from what you describe. The lack of water, that was always standing on line. The, the rationing was a little easier because we could get bread and eggs all the time and occasionally chicken. And you had a lot of trouble uh, even just getting your share of a piece of bread. But the conditions were difficult, but people were more enthusiastic and uh, always ready to explain why there was so much hardship, where while you're there during the special period, people seemed quite critical, but so openly so. Nobody seemed afraid to give their opinion. Right. I think, <clears throat> I believe you were there in, in the 70s. Yeah, maybe. yeah. And that was actually one of Cuba's darkest, philosophically speaking, Moments. This was when I think the Soviet influence was the strongest, had the strongest hold, and that Cuba was the most rigid is what I've heard. It was the decade when it was the most anti-gay, um, when there were sweeps for being a hippie, and it was the most repressive. And that led to the Reconstruction, which is the period I was there was the most open um, in that sense. Unfortunately, then the crisis hit as they were re-examining this, and the reason Cuba had been pushed into that relationship with the Soviet Union, it's a very sad history, but um, 
it's one of any colonized country. And this led to a lot of ties with the Soviet Union that um, were not that is were not that favorable for Cubans in the 70s. So many people think of Cuba as a police state. Uh, what was what was your experience on that regard? Can well, you read from the book about that? Well, actually, I can recount a vignette, which was I asked um, of my friend Leslie Balog, did did she had she heard of police repression? I asked everyone I met, and um, she said, oh, she had just asked her Cuban husband this. He thought for a minute, Orlando did, and scratched his head and said, there are incidents of people beating up the police. <laughs> and um, I remember there was such an incident where people are waiting for the bus, and there was almost a moment where you thought that might happen, but then the yeah. the policeman was able to get people to line up and wait for the bus in an orderly way. Right. And um, actually, uh, this is something that I really have a strong opinion about, because when I was there, actually when I was just leaving, might have come out actually a little after, it was a January 94 memo by the U.S. State Department, and they admitted that most people have been fleeing Cuba, not because of police repression, but, quote, more because of the deteriorating economic situation than a real fear of persecution. Applications submitted by human rights groups, and I'm still reading their statement, lack demonstrable evidence of persecution. Almost none show proof of house searches, interrogations, detention, or arrest. So that was the police state that I found. I really never, never saw any evidence of it myself. You just heard the voice of Marco Pepper talking with Nina Serrano about her book, Through the Wall, a year in Havana. You're listening to Cover to Cover, open book. Stay tuned. Do you think you could read any favorite passages? Well, what I found really funny in Cuba were their names. Oh, I love that section. And um, this humor was very helpful. I've come to rely more on humor and less on food. One of my most amusing finds has been Cuban names. Most people at work know someone who's called Yuznavi, or U.S. Navy. I guess some people living under near the U.S. Navy base at Guantanamo thought the name looked important. My cousin's friend is named One Dollar. Onekis, the foot messenger, told us one morning at work while she killed time crocheting her daughter a new pair of shoes. Why not hundred dollar at least, I wondered. And your name, Onekis? Aha, uh-huh. Onekis pronounced the words deliberately, syllable by syllable. One kiss. Isn't that nice? And she was all grins, retreating self-consciously back into her bony shoulders. Mimi insists her neighbor's kid is called Hitler. She said that when she pointed it out, he said he knew he was named after the German chancellor, so what? Mimi, my supervisor, also says she knows a couple who's named, who named their child Penicillina because penicillin saved the infant's life. There's some argument as to whether there are people named Aspirina. I've heard of quite a few Lenins, Vladimirs, even a Stalin. And every Cuban I asked seems to know or have heard of a proletario or proletariat. Hey, proletariat, this is the second time you come to work late this week. Recently, papers reported that the hospital prevented a couple from naming their child Alien, though some people say they know people who were given that name years ago. 
It's also illegal now to name your child anything that he or she himself cannot pronounce. Like, Ikich, says Sixto, complaining about someone he had to interview by that name. She pronounced it Ikich, he explains, emitting the high-pitched chirp of a prehistoric bird. Is there a last vignette that you'd like to read? Um, actually, this one is entitled, it, it sort of compares both countries, and it's entitled, Things I Hate Admitting I Miss. For me, it was apples. <laughs> That's what I missed the most. Of course, my family and my friends, but when it came to things, it was apples. As I look out over the string of lights delineating the Malecon, past the splendor of the Nacional, toward the marble edifices in Old Havana, I contemplate where I've been and where I'm headed. There are things I hate admitting I miss. Emporium shopping mall on market with its winding escalator and everyone looking so well-fed and groomed, sipping cappuccinos in the cafes on the ground floor, floor, a bag of new clothes next to the seat, and all of it contained under one neon sky, as if the entire world were that way, and everyone's life were that easy. I miss being able to go anywhere in a car or BART, supermarkets where I can buy basics like bleach, a sponge, aspirin, or an inner sole for my shoe. I miss having water whenever I turn on the tap. Luxurious showers, the red flashes on my answering machine, dancing at nightclubs, my mother's sparkling bathroom, washing machines and nice-smelling laundry soap. I miss the ease of life I had as a so-called middle-class citizen of the developed world and being able to bring my class along with me wherever I went. I miss being richer than three-quarters of the world. Is this experience making a reactionary out of me, or am I just more materialistic than I thought? When I get like this, I understand why revolutionaries shoot people with chronic bourgeois syndrome. I like to think if I raised and educated a child correctly in this kind of society, she'd learn to free herself of my capitalist addictions. She'd have to, or like Eduardo Galeano says, the planet will do itself in. After all, here in Cuba... We have a life where headlines don't boast of insane white men who keep chopped up body parts in their refrigerators. Advertisements don't determine our actions. And ecocentrism is looked down upon, not given a Hollywood contract. There are no homeless people clad in the rags of the dark ages, leading a life of utter Dickensian squalor. Thirty million people, three times Cuba's population, do not go hungry as they do in the States, so that 1% of the richest nation can hoard 95% of the wealth, while the remaining majority of us are indentured to credit card companies and mortgages. The function of the government here isn't merely to provide middlemen for the corporate elite, squeezing as much work and money out of the rest of us as they can get away with. In Cuba, the mentally disabled are not left to fend for themselves on the streets, and competition doesn't pit people against one another, forcing them to live like animals by the law of the jungle. Here in Cuba, the life of a human being is valued as irreplaceable. When I leave, I'll miss seeing senior citizens standing in a circle in the parks for their morning exercise class instead of sifting through garbage for breakfast. I'll miss not having to think that the person I'm talking to could benefit from a little therapy 
and not having to worry about all the healthy, happy children. I'll miss being able to walk the streets as unafraid and free as the night wind on my shoulders, knowing I can count on my neighbors should the hook really stalk me after the Saturday night horror flick. I'll miss the spontaneous live music along the Malecon calling us to the sea on scalding starry nights, the outdoor music festivals around the corner from my apartment with powerful all-female bands, seeing legends like Silvio Rodriguez, Gonzalo Rubalcaba, and the Baile Folclorico in fancy music halls for less than the cost of a pack of cigarettes. I'll miss buying books and seeing movies for just a couple of pesos, having the state subsidize monthly feminine products, knowing my employer isn't getting rich from all my hard work, the security of guaranteed health care and a job, the feeling I have at work of producing something together that actually does make the society a bit better for all of us. I'll miss the ridiculous differences in classes, a trip to a hotel, a small pathetic little beach house, a car, one dollar, one dollar tennis shoes, perchance some tomato paste, as opposed to Swiss bank accounts as vast as the grave sites that maintain them. I'll miss the Cubans' developed sense of fairness and justice, their creativity and determination, watching television and reading a paper without my breath growing shallow and my muscles coiling in rage at all the distortions and cruelty, having a government that in fact does look out for most of our interests instead of just sucking us dry because it's mostly comprised of us. I'll miss living in a society where humanity is in the process of creation instead of destruction, where battles are waged against imperfections in the system, against common error, stubbornness, even stupidity, rather than against each other owing to malice or greed. Most of all, I'll miss feeling such a strong interdependence on the human beings around me. I'll miss feeling that I'm an integral part of the destiny of the human race. That was Margot Pepper. She's going to be reading from her new book, Through the Wall, A Year in Havana, at San Francisco State Bookstore at the not the books, yes, at the bookstore and at the Cesar Chavez Student Center at San Francisco State this very Thursday, December 1st at 4 p.m. Margot, in reading the book, there was this wonderful romantic uh, theme running all the way through where she's waiting for her boyfriend Guillermo to come and join her. Uh, can you talk about that a little? Well, I see Guillermo as a metaphor in the story. <clears throat> for the idealism that the narrator experiences, which is waiting for utopia, really, and the perfect revolution. And um, I guess I don't want to say what happened. Right, right, right. No, that wouldn't be fair. But that certainly, that was a very wonderful device that kept kept the book moving along. What was going to happen when he came? Would he actually show up? And all of these questions. And then I like the way you used the... Uh, situation at work and that circle of friends at Grandma where she worked that would talk about the political situation every day, the pros and the cons and the debates. That was very, very good. I really liked that. You, you weave together so many things. It was 
well, it was like a novel more than uh Thank you. Um, I did try to write it as a novel because uh, when I got to Cuba, I realized I know nothing about, I knew nothing about economics and the World Bank and the GATT and dumping and tariffs. And actually this book, um, m what I really wanted to do was write something that made those things which impact our lives part of a story so that people would be really interested to learn about them because they are so fascinating as you see how they impact you directly. I also want to comment that you did the photograph on the cover of the book and that photograph is the view from her balcony where she lived and that balcony is kind of a metaphor for a place where you always go for reflection and support and maybe to be in touch with the cosmos. Yeah, and that balcony, to me, what I realized, I was, thanks for <laughs> um, noticing that. That was a view of the folks that where I lived. And and I had what I called balcony status. And everywhere I've traveled, I've always had balcony status, which is when things get a little rocky somewhere, I can run up to my balcony and have ordered rooms. Or, well, not in the places I stay, but I can um, have a good time as a tourist. Well, in Cuba, there was no balcony status. Half the time, the elevator was broken, and I had to um, walk down and up the 18 flights of stairs. And um, <clears throat> what, what that balcony to me symbolizes is, again, the dichotomy between the first and the third world, and how we have so much privilege, even Chicanos here in this country, that we don't realize when um, it really comes to the daily grind of living in, uh, um, it's not like going to Guatemala and living there as a colonialist, which is what a lot of people here would become if they moved there, whether they like it or not. In Cuba, I didn't go with any dollars, so I was um, completely, I mean, I had just a few to call my mother, and but um, it just, it, I didn't have this privilege, so I really got to see what it was like to live without subsidies, without anything. Are there any last questions that you wished I'd asked? Um, well, I just, I think that um, when it comes, I guess people always want to know, was there or was there not democracy in Cuba? Did I see that? And um, one of my, um, and when people are wondering about whether there is democracy in Cuba, I'm, I, I, you have to ask, what do they mean by democracy? Do they mean a fair playing field for wealthy and powerful sectors? Voting rights for corporations, like in this country, or the rights of corporations to determine the quality of our drinking water, air, and so forth, one vote per dollar? Or is what's meant by democracy the way school children understand fairness, all of us are none kind of democracy. Cuba was more like the second definition of democracy than any other society I've, I've experienced, though it wasn't really, it didn't really re live up to my expectations for a utopia or a democ democratic utopia where the workers control their destinies and reach their highest potential. But what does 